Jesus, you are all to us. Jesus, you are all to us. Amen. One day we'll see him face to face.
Isn't it good to sing those songs together? It really is. Our, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Uh, Pastor Mike continues to preach through Ephesians, so we'll continue to read from Ephesians. And this morning we're going to be reading verses 15 through to the end of the chapter, verse 23. And we'll remain standing together out of honor for God and His perfect word. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You may be seated. And as we go to prayer now, just two things to mention. First, I want to remind you that in the seat back in front of you, you should see a little prayer card. And we just want to remind you that that's available to you. We, uh, we look at these and take them seriously, and the pastors and elders pray for what's written down. So if there's anything on your heart, uh, we'd love you to take advantage of just writing down something on those prayer cards. Uh, and then second, as we pray... Uh, This morning, instead of normally what we would do, having a missionary highlight to focus on in prayer, uh, we're going to be praying for next week, Easter Sunday, and especially for all of the the people who are going to be joining, not just at Grace, but at other churches uh, close by and around the world who, who haven't heard the gospel or who haven't trusted in Christ, and praying for that. So let's pray together. Father, we want to... um together as your people this morning, just bow before the feet of Jesus. He is the Lord of all. He's been exalted over all things, all powers and dominion and authority. Jesus is the one true King, and he reigns. And Lord, we thank you that you've made us his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, and that as his body, we are connected to Jesus, our head. Thank you that he is the one who gives us life, who energizes the activity of the body. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to never be disconnected from the head. Thank you for uh, Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we pray that this morning, everything that we're doing as we're gathering would uh, would be to his glory and by his strength. Lord, thank you so much that that we've received forgiveness in Christ. We know uh, our own hearts and we know how quick we are to turn away from you, even as believers, to go back to the old fleshly ways that once characterized our lives. And so we feel our need for your grace this morning. Thank you so much that Christ has died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to you. And thank you that through him we have peace with you, fellowship with you, life, forgiveness for every sin. Lord, thank you that we don't have to try to earn your favor. Um, we praise you for that this morning. Lord, we want to pray for all the believer, uh, the unbelievers next week who are going to be joining at Grace Orange and at so many other churches around us in Orange County and beyond. Lord, we know that apart from you, there is no hope that the spiritually dead person would come to faith in Christ. And so we just humbly ask for the work of your spirit 
Lord, we pray that as your gospel is being, uh, being preached next week here and in other local churches, that you would give it spiritual power, that it would come uh, into the hearts of unbelievers with, with power by the, uh, by the Spirit, and that they would receive it as what it, it really is, your word, not just the word of a man. Um, Lord, we pray that you would bring people from death to life. We pray that you would help people to understand the message of the gospel and that you would open their eyes to see that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to you except through him. And we pray that you'd help us to be, uh, even next week, a, a group of people characterized by humility and love, so that even outsiders would come and have a sense that you really are among us. Father, we thank you for this morning to be together. We pray that you would do in us the kind of things that Paul prays for here in Ephesians 1, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see uh, the riches of our inheritance, the power that is in us by Christ. Lord, would you show us these things in your word this morning, and would it all be to the praise of Christ. That's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a song called Jerusalem. We don't sing it often, but it has some powerful pictures of Christ going to the cross. And, and one of the lines says, See the king who made the sun and the moon and the shining stars. Let the soldiers hold and nail him down so that he could save them. So just as we're, as we're singing, be, be thinking of, of the words and the, and the picture that it's giving of our God who came to save us.
in. And Lord, it's not an invitation uh, to sinners still in sin, but sinners washed clean by the blood of Christ. We thank you. Help us to live in that reality that we have an advocate praying for us, interceding for us by the Father, because there's no guilt, there's no punishment left for us because he paid it all. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think when you hear the word enlightenment? Enlightenment. You may think of the search for spiritual enlightenment. You figure out the secret of the universe. You might think even of Buddhism, that they believe that's the final blessed state marked by the absence of desire or suffering. You might think of the 18th century philosophical movement called the Enlightenment, marked by a rejection of traditional social and religious and political ideas. It emphasized man's ability to rule his own life. You might think of enlightenment through education, understanding uh, the way something works. Or you might say to someone, enlighten me. You know, uh, tell me the answer. But according to the Bible, enlightenment is the act of God whereby he 
helps you understand biblical truth. The act of God whereby we are better able to understand the Bible. Why is that important? Why do we need to know about that today? Because it's very easy for us to have spiritual amnesia, and some people keep forgetting what they've got. Some people have spiritual dementia, if you will. Some people have short-term memory loss and need to be keep reminded about who they are in Christ. And the Christian needs to be reminded often about who we are and what we're supposed to do. But oftentimes, sometimes it's because there's a spiritual disinterest. Maybe someone doesn't even care about what's going on in their soul. And the idea is that we need to know and be reminded who God is and what he has given us, lest we devalue it or forget it. True story, I once gave someone a gift that they had thrown away. I was helping them move, and they threw a lot of good things away. I was watching them, and they were throwing away, like, good stuff. And one was a brand new uh, UCLA lamp in a box. And I'm a UCLA fan, so I snatched that up and threw it in my truck. And I grabbed it and took it, brand new lamp in a box, never used, never opened. And then when they moved into their new home, it was my housewarming gift to them. (laughs) Kept it in my garage for over a year, waiting for the right moment. I gave them what they already had, but they had not valued enough to keep. Sometimes we devalue what we have in Christ. Or we forget. Recently when I was in Africa, going uh, through the many potholes uh, and muddy swamp-like rivers they call roads, I said, and I, and I believe I came back and told Grace Church this, I said, I will never again complain about the roads in America. Who remembers me saying that? There you go. I'm on record. You know, we have it so comparatively better. The, the roads here are so much better. But yet, driving after the recent rains, there was one day I was going through pothole after pothole. I was hitting every pothole because everything was a pothole. And I just started complaining about all these potholes and why no one's fixing the roads. Completely forgot what I had promised weeks earlier, resolved not to complain, fell right back into it. We forget what we have in Christ, and sometimes we even complain about it. I think maybe this is one of the reasons why we latch on to annual, you know, yearly remembrances of things like Christmas and Easter, uh, that for the Christian should shape every day. Now we're in Ephesians 1, uh, 15 to 19 today, and we find Paul praying for enlightenment. You catch Paul in the very active prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. Praise had been coming straight from his mouth and his heart, and now prayer follows it. And what is he praying for? He's praying that they would, they would see God working in their hearts, that they would be sanctified, they'd settle down, they'd, they'd see spiritual realities, that God would enlighten them. When they're tempted to devalue or forget or complain, and enlightenment helps you avoid the potholes and praise God. Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians followed a familiar format, similar format. First part is indicatives. This is what God has done. And then the second part, here's the imperatives. Here's what you must do as a result of what God has done. And in a hyper 
uh, superstitious culture like first century Ephesus, where there was social, spiritual error, was charged with fear of magical powers, they needed this, just like we need it today. And so what's happening as we look at this prayer, we'll look at it this week and next, Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, and, and, the, and the second part talks about the resurrection, so it's perfect for Easter, but it picks up certain threads that were in verses 3 to 14 and really starts laying the basis for things that will be said later on in the letter. Consists, again, no surprise, uh, in the Greek, in verses 15 to 23, of one long sentence in the Greek. We have periods and commas and what have you. And in the Greek, it's written and it's divided where the reader would, would take breaths. But what is he praying? His, his desire was that they would know God and know what God had given to them. This is what we need. You know, some, some people um, have a hard time grasping the glorious truths of God's gracious gospel gifts in Christ. You know, it's interesting when you're trying to buy a gift for someone, some people are really hard to find a gift for. And you, you find yourself saying, what do I give to the person who has everything, right? You've had that happen? Well, Ephesians 1, 15 to 23 is the prayer for those who have everything. That we who are in Christ have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every blessing of the Spirit. Election, predestination, adoption, grace, forgiveness, redemption, understanding and knowledge of God's will, uh, being sealed with the Spirit. We have an inheritance that is eternal. Paul wanted the Ephesians to, to realize who God is and what he does and, and then have their relationship with God be growing uh, progressively, that would be deepened, that they would know God more fully. Oftentimes we're praying for people and just praying for people that maybe have gone wayward or whatever. This is praying for the church. This is praying for Christians. This is the prayer that every Christian needs prayed for them. He wants them to grow in their relationship with God and then experience, really experience the benefits they already have in a a deeper way. It's like marriage. You've been married for a while. Hopefully you're loving your spouse more deeply than you did at first. And when you've been married for a long time, that you would say, wow, I love my spouse far more than I did before. The idea of the first part of this prayer is that we must trust God to help us know him better and experience what he has given. It's that simple. That that we would trust God to help us know him better and then experience what he has given us. That we would rely on God for insight, that we would come to know him more, that we would understand what he has given to us. These verses we're looking at today, broken down in two sections Pretty clearly, first, trusting God to help believers know him better, and secondly, trusting God to illumine the word so believers would know what they possess. Trust God to help you know him better, and trust God to illumine his word or enlighten you to know his word such that you would know what you possess in Christ. This is for the believer. First, that you would trust God to to help you know him better. And and we pick it up at verse 15, where he basically says, for this reason, 
Like, I'm going to start praying here because I am so excited about what God has done. And so I'm praying it for the church. I am praying it for the church. This is what prompts the prayer. This is what tees it up. This is what puts him on point. The motivation springs from heart welling up with thankfulness over God's grace in Christ. And he has just rehearsed from verses 3 to 14 all the beautiful, glorious uh, gifts that God gives. God's redemptive acts are planned by the Father and purchased by the Son and preserved by the Spirit. And it just incites Paul to praise. And then he, he hears of their solid testimony. He has spent three years with this church, and now he's hearing of their solid testimony in Christ. And he's thanking God for their faith and their love. They had true faith. They truly believed in Jesus. They trusted Jesus' finished work on the cross, that Jesus died for their sins in their place on the cross, shedding his blood. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He's now ascended. At the, he's ascended and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is reigning. We'll see that in, in, in uh, very clear detail next week. What is Jesus doing right now? He was interceding for the saints according to the will of God. And he's thanking God for all of this. They had true faith in, in Jesus, but they were also showing true love. Like if you truly have faith, you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's going to come out. It's going to happen. Love for other believers is evidence of saving faith. So it's a, a cause for Paul to thank God. He's thanking God. He says, for this reason I have heard of your faith because I heard, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. Literally making mention of you in my prayers. You know what that tells us? He wasn't just praying generic prayers for God bless the Ephesian church. He was praying for them by name. He was praying for real people that he knew. I heard of your faith and love. I know you. I know what's going on. I see it. I'm excited. I hear about it. Wow. Thankful for your spiritual progress and you're continuing in the faith and you love Jesus and you love other believers. And again, outgoing love is evidence of genuine faith. And so what Paul says is, I am persistently thanking God for you. Literally, it's like a geyser. It's like a gushing. It's not stopping. This is what Paul does when he writes the letters to the New Testament churches. He tells them often, I'm praying for you. And he means he's praying for real people that he knew. It's a great picture of body life in the, in the body of Christ with members. And it's not, you're not a member of a club. Uh, you, members in, in 1 Corinthians 12 talks about body parts. That we're part of the body of Christ. And we are actually belonging. And we are, then we're praying and serving and giving and all of those things. It's a good time to pause and say, you know how many ample reasons there are for you to be in a healthy, faith, biblically faithful uh, church, local church? Because in, in a local church, uh, people are going to encourage you to follow Jesus, love Jesus, and, and they're going to encourage you to pray, and they encourage you to give, and encourage you to serve, and encourage you to deal with your issues in a biblical way, and, and encourage you to, to reach out with the gospel and to repent and reconcile and, and do what Christians do. And you get to do the same in the local church with real people. You will often find that Jesus gives you the strength you need through the church. It builds you up in the faith through the sweet fellowship of fellow believers. And when you pray together and serve together and give and you're, you're in membership in a body. This is what's, what's being reflected when Paul says, I thank God for your testimony and for your love. 
So first you need to trust God to help believers know him better. And knowing him better is with a knowing Jesus. Look at verse 17. The God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Knowing him. That you're so thankful at, that people are in Christ doing what, Je- what Christians do, what Jesus inspires Christians to do, that you're now trusting God to help believers know him better, and it happens as he illumines the word so believers would know what they have, is what we see. He's asking for you know, one primary thing here, really, one primary thing. He's asking for enlightenment, that, that mysterious word that is really clear. It's, God helps you understand the word. He says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the only one capable of answering the prayer, by the way, the glorious Father, literally, glorious Father, Hebrew way of saying he is sovereign and he is in control and he is merciful. He is the God of glory and power. That the Father of glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. No other way to be saved. There's no other way. He's the Father of glory, the the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the God of Israel. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he's also the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His covenant name is he is the God of all nations who come to him through the incarnate Son. And what Paul is praying is I'm praying that this God would give you something. Now, this is not like you getting what you put on your gift wish list. Like, please buy me this. It's not, that's not what this is. It's not getting a gift from your wish list. God gives you what he always intended to give you, and, and you already have it, and, and you experience it more fully. And he's saying that he would give you the Spirit. doesn't mean they didn't have the Spirit. They were indwelt by the Spirit. He's saying a fuller measure of experiencing God, that they would truly know, and they would, they would know God and know what they have, it's like Isaiah 11, this messianic prophecy. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That he would, that he would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That there, there can be a, a deeper experience of the spirit's work in your life. The spirit's action in your life. Or, or you can stifle his action. You can quench the spirit. You can grieve the spirit by going your own way. But they're indwelt by the spirit of God. He wants them to have an increasing experience of the spirit's illumination of the hope and the riches and the power that they have. And so he says that he would give you the spirit of wisdom. True wisdom has its foundation in the fear of the Lord. Holy Spirit gives the wisdom from above, enables believers to have true wisdom and insight. Wisdom and revelation. Notice it says, and of revelation that you would have insight and even discernment the Spirit gives you regarding the gospel, and regarding the Christian life. It says a a revelation in the knowledge of him, that you would know him, that you believe in him, you're loving the church, and that you would continue to get to know God better. The knowledge of the Holy One is the beginning of understanding, of true understanding, as Proverbs tells us, as Job tells us. Now, the object of the knowledge is God the Father through the incarnate Christ. As Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. 
But he is praying that they would know God more completely, and this fuller knowledge is coming through this personal acquaintance with God, and he says it, and here's how he says it in verse 18, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Last time I looked at a picture of a heart, there weren't eyes on it. This is a very unusual expression that, that he's saying that you would understand God's ways, that God would give you spiritual sight to know and experience what he has given. The eyes of your heart, this inner awareness. Heart in scripture is, is the seat of thought and your will and your moral judgment and your feelings and what he's talking about is a deep interior enlightenment provided by the Holy Spirit that leads the believer to realize all that God has made available to them. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you would know, that you would know something, that you would understand something. The idea is the light here puts the believer's spiritual eyes into a state of enlightenment that your heart can see i know it sounds funny but that your heart can see because the darkness has been dispelled by god it takes away the darkness it's enlightenment or or another way to put it is illumination that's given to all believers who seek to know and understand the word of god Psalm 19, 130, the psalmist says, the unfolding of your words gives light. The idea of the unfolding, it's the opening up of your words, the, the unveiling of your words, it gives understanding. It gives understanding to the simple. That God gives you understanding as you prayerfully take the word of God to heart. And, and a Christian could, could know this confidently, that you can open up your Bible and actually understand what is there. That instead of making the Bible say what you want it to say, you allow it to speak into your life. That your heart would be ready to receive the truth from the Spirit of God. As the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 18, I love this prayer. Open my eyes that I would see wonderful things in your word. Oh, that we would have that kind of desire when we come to the word of God. Help me see wonderful things in your word. I know there's wonderful things in there. Help me see these wonderful things. Through illumination, through enlightenment, the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to understand all those wonderful things. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and you'll notice something with me that, and this is describing, there's a passage here that describes enlightenment and illumination that we're talking about here, that Paul is praying for, that we need. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, pick it up at verse 6, so let's go to 6 to 16. Let me just read it. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined 
what God has prepared for those who love him. That's a quote of Isaiah 64, verse 4. It is wrongly applied often by Christians to heaven. It's not about heaven. It's referring to the wisdom of God prepared for believers in the word of God. It's talking about the giving of the word of truth. It says in verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. This is the gospel. This is the word of God. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us. That's enlightenment. That's illumination that we would know the word of God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, to those who are saved, to those who have been converted to Christ. Verse 14, the natural person, the unbeliever, the unconverted, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, the Christian, judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What's he talking about here? Paul's talking about a mystery. And and mystery in the New Testament is not something puzzling. It's truth known to God before time and revealed in his perfect time kept secret until the time he planned to reveal it, and it's for our glory, is that he would save and glorify sinners. And had they known, had the evil people that crucified Jesus known, and here you have the crucifixion being proof of the Jewish leaders and rulers not being wise, and the Spirit searches the depths of God. He knows the mind of God. He is God. He grants us the understanding the Lord wants us to have. The wisdom that saves, that man's wisdom can't know, that's revealed to us by God. Revealed by God in revelation. The Spirit gave to Bible writers undiscoverable uh, truth, that, you know, uh, truth that was undiscoverable by unaided human reason. And God gave it by inspiration. The Spirit enabled them to write down in God-chosen words the infallible truth of the Word of God. That's what this passage is saying. But then the illumination is that all believers, 14, verses 14 to 16, all believers who seek to know and understand God's word can. That the Spirit enables believers to understand truth given by revelation and written down by inspiration, and the Spirit of God does the work. That God has revealed them, and the natural man, the unconverted, lack the supernatural life and wisdom. But through the enlightenment that God gives, the illumination of the word, the Holy Spirit provides the capacity for you and I to discern divine truth. Divine truth that the, spirit, the spiritually dead can't, can't understand, can't comprehend. It says we have the mind of Christ. Verse 16, the mind of Christ. The same word is, is understanding in verse 14 and 15 and 19. Later on in, in, this, in this passage, in this, in this letter, The believers are allowed by the word and the spirit to know. This is like Luke 24, 25. He opened, Luke 24, 45. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Same words being used. He doesn't just open your heart at conversion. He continues through the Christian life to make the gospel clear to you, to continue to remind you, even as you're tempted to to forget or neglect or complain but to convince you of the truth. 
This is not talking about God giving you some kind of secret insight that you can't derive by just reading the text in context. Enlightenment or illumination helps you understand what is already there. God is not downloading secret messages to you or anything ridiculous like that. No, without the Holy Spirit's work, you'll never understand the Bible in a saving way. A lot of people, they read the Bible and they know, they know what it says, but they never believe the message. They do not believe because they have not been granted the ability to do so through enlightenment, through illumination. This is the work of the Spirit of God. If you're able to understand the gospel, understand the word of God, thank God every day. Thank God every day that he has granted you the capacity to trust him and his word and ask him to enlighten you, to illumine you every time you read it. Every time. 1 John 2.20 says this, you have been anointed by the Holy One. This is also a, a verse that uh, people do violence to and, and, and say it means something else. You have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. That means that the Spirit of God has given us the Word of God and we understand the Word of God. Paul is praying that Christians would be enlightened by God, the Holy Spirit, to understand the things freely given to them by God. And you think about the illustration he's using about enlightenment it was, it's far stronger, it was far stronger in his day than ours. We live in a time when there's lights everywhere. And if it gets dim, you can open up your phone and use your you know, flashlight on your phone. In Paul's day, you know what they had? Torches and bonfires. Those are the biggest lights they had, the biggest lights available. But usually they were just enlightened by these you know, tiny flickering flames of oil lamps, just little lamps. At nighttime, pitch darkness, sheer darkness was the norm. And Paul is praying to God that God would cast his piercing spotlight for the Ephesians' mind's eyes. <laughs> that even the messianic morning star would rise in their hearts. That, that Christ would give them understanding. It, it's the, I, I think the impact, you know, if you talk about enlightenment right now and seeing something, it's maybe a little bit diminished to us because we have so much light around us. Some of us, you know, you, some people leave the lights on all night. And you have light everywhere, and even on our phones and, and um, you know, our ovens and everything has a light on it. And I mean, we rarely, in our time, we rarely experience light without, uh, life without lights uh, or even ambient light. Um, yeah, I mean, you can even get the, the night vision goggles. You can do that if you want. And then you've got, we, we live in a spiritual landscape where people are saying, why do you need God to enlighten you? You can do this on your own. Truth is, God displays his power as the Spirit of God enlightens and illumines, reveals the word as the people of God meditate on it, think about it. The word meditate literally means to mutter to yourself, like over and over again, telling yourself the truth that counteracts the lies. The idea is like shining the light so you can see and understand. One of, my, one of my jobs as a kid when my dad would be working on a car is to hold the light. Shining the light so that you could see and understand. It's like this, like you're reading the Bible and suddenly you're struck by something in the text that it, it seems as if you never noticed it before. You might have studied it before, but you, all of a sudden you're reading the Bible and you realize, wow, that truth, it's just jumping off the page at me. You, you see how the passage 
uh, applies to your specific situation in life right now. And, and then you, maybe you understand a, an argument, the shape of an argument that, that escaped you previously. This is the Holy Spirit's work of enlightenment. This is illumination. This is God helping you know what he's given you. It's dependent on God. Enlightenment is dependent on God. Christ illumines his word to us by the Spirit. This is, our, this is us understanding the word of God, the way and the will of God. Uh, it's, it's because of what Jesus has done and because the Spirit indwells every believer. And so this prayer that's getting prayed, it's the kind of prayer that we should be praying. It's the kind of prayer we want prayed for, our, for us. This prayer is for God to do what only God can do. That the Holy Spirit would take what is Christ's and disclose it to us, that we would know the mind of Christ. And if you truly have a knowledge of the truth, if you have a true knowledge of the truth, and you know what you believe, you can give a reason for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. If you know the truth, you stick to what the Bible actually says. You could even help fellow believers not be confused, especially the most impressionable among us, by the well-meaning who are oftentimes confused about what the Bible actually says. Trust God to help believers know him better and trust God to illumine the word so believers would know what they've been given. And then Paul is, is he's praying this. He's praying that they would know God and know what God has given. Then he specifies three things. It's a knowledge of God that you may know. And the first of those, and these are very bedrock uh, important things in the Christian life. The first is the hope of his calling. This irresistible call to Christ that you responded to. God wants them to understand the hope and its object, God. And God has called them to himself and has provided for them. He says in chapter 4 of Ephesians, you were called in one hope of your calling. It's the idea of there's hope attached. This is Christ in us, the hope of glory. This is an anchor for our soul, this hope we have in Christ. And what's so significant for them and for us is that formerly, before we come to know Christ, you have no such hope because you were without God in the world. You were on your own. But when you're aware of the hope, you can enjoy it as a result of the fact that God has called you. The calling is the pledge of hope. It's, it's, it's looking to the future. It's attached to the blessed hope of eternal glory. And the calling is effectual and it's irresistible and, and it's interesting you can use all sorts of examples here, but take an example from sports when someone gets drafted, like the NFL, the NFL draft. Let's say someone gets drafted and they don't report. They say, I don't want to go. You don't know me. I don't want to go. First NFL player to be drafted, uh, Jay Berwanger, never joined the, Chicago, the Bears because instead he went to be a rubber salesman. He said, I don't want to go. I was, I, he was drafted. He didn't want to do it. Or maybe you, you get called up in the military draft. Well, I remember when I was 18 years old, uh, 1980, they reinstituted the military draft. So I had to go down to the post office and, and, and uh, register for the draft. But then they didn't end up doing it. But if they had, and they said, you drafted, I would have needed to show up. And I had been chosen. I'm going. Uh, you're supposed to report. Well, the idea in the Christian life is that God called, you responded, you're his. You're, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. And there's a blessing about this. Why would, why would you want to know the hope of your calling? Why, why would this be important? So that you would have confidence on a daily basis that you're not getting lost, you're not getting thrown away. You have ongoing confidence in Christ. 
I mean, the danger of not knowing this is that you just ignorantly live as a self-determined, functional atheist. Someone once said this, where the light of revelation is not accompanied by spiritual experience and power in our souls, it will end either in formality or atheism. When feelings outrun the light of revelation, they sink into the bog of superstition. The Christian knows the hope of God's calling. And secondly, he brings up the riches of his inheritance. The riches. The hope and the riches. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We saw it back in verse 14. The redeemed are his prized possession, his inheritance. We're going to be preserved. We're the the Lord's unique prized possession. We've been obtained with his own blood, by the blood of Christ. We are his inheritance, just like the Levites, where God said, they shall be mine in the day I make up my treasured possession. You need to know that you're his and that you, you have the riches of his inheritance. Think back to when you first found out uh, that you had a name. People have been calling you something, and all of a sudden you realize, that's me. And they've been calling you this for a while, and you didn't know what they were saying, and then all of a sudden you knew. Then you realized, I got a last name too. I got a first name and a last name, and they gave me one in the middle too. Wow, I got three names. Some people have four or five, I, I realize that. Some people have one. I know a man right now in this room. He has one name. It's a beautiful name. My dad, he never got a middle name. There's no middle name on the birth certificate. It's a first name and a last name. But think back to when you first became conscious of your name. When you found out, and you're like, wow. And you like your name. Some people like to change theirs. I know that they're weirdos. But, uh, (laughs) you know, your name is important. That's why you want to learn people's names not be called the wrong name and all of that, but you have the riches of the inheritance in Christ. You are Christ's. You belong to him. You have an identity. You, You have to realize that. I mean, what if someone told you there is this earthly inheritance awaiting you besides unpaid bills? Like you're gonna get something. You're like, hmm, okay. But what about what when God says there is a glorious wealth beyond this life that you will inherit all the wealth of God himself, your inheritance is in heaven, you have the same inherited glory, but alongside all of God's perfected saints throughout all the ages in the kingdom of God, like Moses and you have the same inheritance. Like, seriously? Like David and you, and Esther and others. Wow! Paul, you have the same inheritance. You're not like tier, you're not like tier two or you know fourth round draft pick or Mr. or Mrs. Irrelevant. You know, you're the last draft pick. No, you 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 all have the same inheritance and it's it's glorious and it it resides, guess where it resides? In the Father of Glory. The Father of Glory, the glorious Father, who dispenses it to us out of mere grace, that we're God's heritage, and he and all that he possesses belong together. And, and guess why we have it? Do you know why, why we could even be called a child of God in Christ? It's because of our elder brother, the incarnate son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who purchased this rare privilege for us. The concept of inheritance 
in the New Testament relates directly to our adoption as sons and daughters of God. And even when Paul was, was, was speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said this, he said this, I commend you to God and the word of your, his grace that is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. You have this. He's reminding a group of elders, this is yours. And they didn't go, oh, we already know that. Riches. Uh, you know, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you where you, mean you get a job somewhere and uh, you're thinking you're getting paid a certain thing, amount, and maybe it's just verbal, and then you get your first paycheck and you're like, well, um, I don't think we agreed to this. I remember my first paycheck job. I was working at uh, Douglas Bakery in uh, the city of Downey at the Stonewoods Shopping Center, and I was trying to raise money to go to uh, Montana for cross-country camp for high school. This is about 1978, and I get my first paycheck. It's this handwritten paycheck, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, I don't think this is the right amount. So I go up to Mr. or Mrs. Douglas, I can't remember who, they were both mean to me. Uh, <laughs> I said, uh, hey, you know, excuse me, but... Um, I thought I was getting $1.65 an hour. It turns out this is only $1.25 an hour. True story. $1.65 was the minimum wage back then. And they're like, we don't have to pay you minimum wage. You're underage. You're 15. We have lots of boys that want this job. You want this job or not? Sometimes it happens. No riches there. Recently, I was in Malawi with um, some of our brothers from, from Grace, and we were going with our friend Newton to to uh, get something to eat and get some gas and what have you. And we were trying to find a restroom, and he walks us through this hotel, and there are all these people at a conference. But what I noticed was not the people, just the lavish food that was set up on all these tables. And we're walking through, and I'm thinking, me likey, I want some of this, you know. And, but it wasn't for me. I wasn't invited. I wasn't registered. And I didn't, I didn't um, have permission to go up to the tables and and take all those snacks and goodies and, and delicacies. But Christian, here's, if you're a Christian today, you, you know what's true about you? You have all the riches that Scripture tells you you have in Christ. And you believe it by faith, but they're intended for you. And the prayer here that the, is that the Holy Spirit would help you understand it for your good, for God's glory, that you would experience and enjoy and be nourished by and be excited about the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, in the church, in the holy ones, in Christians. What a blessing. It guarantees a future outcome. Danger is obvious on this one. The danger is obvious on this one. It's seeking all your treasure on earth and Maybe ignorance that would lead to disinterested isolation from the church because you're like, I'm on my own. I'm just going to go after it in life. James talks about this. James chapter 5 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you, will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up for yourself treasures in the last days. Puritan John Flavel said this, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible to see how industrious many are for an inheritance on earth. 
and how careless for heaven. He said, you that labor for the world, as if heaven were in it, what will you do when at death you will look back over your shoulder and see what you have spent your time and strength for? But we all pray to the Lord that he would eradicate from our hearts any concern towards an inheritance that perishes. What God wants us to know is the hope of his calling and the riches of his inheritance. And then in verse 19, we see this, the greatness of his power. Greatness of his power. Now, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Wow, wow, wow. Uh, Yeah, you just saw power like four times. Paul is collecting all the synonyms he can get his hands on and piling them up to describe God's power. Very notable, very unique what he's doing here. is the superabundant, magnanimous magnitude of his power. We have, um, we have a knowledge of destructive powers. We know of earthquakes and tornadoes, and sledgehammers. We know of constructive, creative power. The power of God to set the world into existence, to speak his word, to save a soul to bring human life into existence and to sustain that life. Power. I think we're a culture that is fixated on power. Forbes, for many years, I think it was from 2009 to 2018, would make a, a list of the most powerful people in the world. I think it started with like 27 people. By the last time they did the list, it was like 75 people. And they said, wow, the, you know, the world is filled with billions and billions of people, but these are the people that really run the show. And you know who wasn't on the list. This is an elaborate the description of the display of the omnipotence of the Lord of hosts, and it's the enormous power of God that, that raised Jesus from the dead. It's incar- incomparably great. And it's unimaginable, and it's for all who believe. It's vital power. I mean, we can do all the feats of strength we want. And we can uh, you know, memorize all the stats of our favorite sports teams. We can go to the combine and run really fast. But what Paul is saying is it's not going to be you doing it. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart will be opened, that you would grasp the sovereign power of God that was applied to the risen and reigning Messiah. And that that power is the power you live with now. And you're not going to be jumping tall buildings with a single leap. You'll be living the Christian life. The exceeding greatness of his power that raised Jesus from the dead and took him back to glory to take a seat at God's right hand, that power is given to every believer at conversion and is always present. You notice that Paul did not pray that God's power would be given to them, but that they would be aware of it, that they already possessed it, that, they, that they are, 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 it's, it's being used now. I mean, the blessing is, do you realize you know, that you're empowered to, to live the Christian life due to Christ's resurrection and reign? It's not a piece of cake. You know, when I wake up every day, literally, I just say, whether I feel good or not, Thank you, Lord, for a new day. I said it this morning audibly. Thank you for a new day. 
You have power, we have power in Christ that is, is otherworldly, and if we somehow get to thinking, oh, we're doing this thing on our own, we are, are the most deceived people around. You know, the danger in this is abusing or neglecting God's power through self-promotion. Like, this is gonna be how everyone sees me. He says, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. This is the only way to appreciate your hope in Christ and live in obedience to him. And if you think it through, you think it through and you go, wow, every Christian has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's put his mark of ownership on us. He possesses us so that we possess eternal life. We have him forever. He is committed to preserving us and making us like Jesus. Wow, and, and, and the prayer would be that we experience that, that we experience who God is and what he gives. What that means, what does it mean to have a living experience of the truth of the gospel in your daily life? It doesn't look unemotional. It doesn't look unfeeling. It doesn't look unthinking. The idea is we're praying, the prayer is for enlightenment, for illumination, to delight to understand what we have. This is what God wants for us, for you and me and us together. But we all know the light can be obscured. Be obscured by clouds, or you can you can just shut your eyes. Eyelids can can do that. I think sometimes things in life can get so jumbled up in our hearts that you know we think something untrue. I think this is one of the reasons why we, we need to pray this for ourselves and for one another more often. I mean, think about it. You can start thinking things that are untrue. Like during a, a big storm that, that keeps going, you might think the sun will never shine again. Where's my vitamin D, right? But see, the Christian needs to know what God has given. That you, you wouldn't live unaware that you are a child of God or devalue that or forget that. That God testifies with us by his spirit, through his word, that we are his children. Romans eight sixteen. And it must hit you in the totality of your being so that it would affect the totality of your life. It's not where you're hearing an audible voice or seeing some vision or having some ecstatic utterance. What it usually means in normal everyday life is that the Spirit of God enables you to see the Word of God and the promises of God and the assurances of God and brings them to you with power. And you truly experience them and you know them and believe them and become certain of them. And that things literally become luminously clear to you in the spiritual realm that you are as certain that you are spiritually alive as a child of God as you are physically alive. I hope you believe that. I hope you know. I hope you experience the reality of the reality. It's like Peter talked about. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus... You're sealed with the Spirit. You belong to Him. But some people who believe in the Lord Jesus don't have that kind of assurance or don't seem to have that kind of assurance and they seem unaware. What happens in your soul when you become aware of it? What does it do to your soul? It should drive away fear. It should drive away doubt and excessive dabbling in the things of the world. And I guess I would just say this. If knowing Jesus never affects you, your mind, your heart, your soul, your affections. How can you say with, with Paul, Colossians 3, 4, Christ is our life? How can you say with Jesus in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing? 
I think the life of Christ in a Christian will show itself in some way that is not unfeeling or unemotional or dry or lifeless. If you're a Christian, there will be signs of life. This is what Paul is praying for. Lord, we thank you and praise you and love you. Uh, I pray, Lord, every, every believer that you would, you would just thrill our souls with these truths so that when life gets tough in a few minutes or in a few hours or a few days, we would have bedrock biblical truth to rely upon, that we would tell people we're a Christian, that we would think about being Christians, that we would resolve to live like believers, that we would internally experience you and that would come out somehow in our lives and in your church and that we wouldn't be screaming to get ourselves attention or begging people to notice us, but we would just have the beautiful outflow of of Christ's life in us, that we would be able to be ourselves and live the Christian life that we would experience what you give in a, in a fuller way as we go along in this life, that even that your joy would surprise us when we least expect it, and we would experience the truth more deeply. We love you, we thank you, we praise you for what you alone do. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. stand with us as we close and sing. This life is an altar where I want to offer my soul and my mind and strength. Cleansed by your mercy a life worthy of the one who called my name. Jesus be glorified, Jesus be magnified, let me be a pleasing sacrifice. Jesus be
teams that are going out. Uh, we have a team going out to Japan in June, Ellie and Matt and Hannah Radmilovich and June and July. Uh, pray for our Good Friday and Easter services. Invite your friends and family and neighbors. And uh, this Wednesday night, midweek service, we'll have our turkey team, Alan Weisenberger, Dan Martin, and Paul Shibley, 7 p.m. right in this room. And a women's spring tea is going on April 29th. So make sure you sign up for that, ladies. And then uh, I want to invite any elders that are in the service coming up. We're commissioning today uh, James Holt right here, this, this young man right here, as a full-time associate pastor with Grace. And uh, yes, and uh, he's been with us. James has been with us for the past four years as he studied for his Master of Divinity at the Master's Seminary. He's graduating next month. But during that time, he has served with us as a pastoral intern and then on pastoral staff while also working as a local missionary uh, through On Mission Partners. So as of yesterday, as of April 1, he is full-time with Grace, will no longer work through On Mission, uh, but he'll continue to oversee local outreach, our Hispanic ministry, Spanish ministries, as before, and then begin to oversee some of our other adult discipleship ministries, such as men's ministry and other things. So uh, you probably already know James and Rebecca. Uh, we've loved, we love them so much. Uh, they've got uh, seven boys, six boys, <laughs> And one to make the appearance in July. So I like to say they have seven kids already. We know that. Um, but the seventh will be making the appearance soon. And we love them so much. We just want to pray for them now and for God's blessing on their family and ministry as they continue to serve among us. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your grace to us in, in saving and sanctifying and even giving us the privilege to serve you in some way. Well, thank you for James and Rebecca Holt. Thank you for their boys. Thank you for their family. Thank you, Lord, for your grace uh, to them and even bringing them to us four years ago and just the way that they have such a blessing among this body of believers and out in the community. We pray, Lord, you continue to lead and guide and protect and provide for them. And as James, as he serves you uh, amongst us, uh, we thank you and just praise you for uh, the wonderful opportunities you have given and for what you will do. And we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, and as we close, may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in the 